Well, welcome to Cross Point Church. For all of you who are visiting online, my name is Mike Daniels, and uh, I am one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege uh, today to open God's Word with you as pastor is away on a little bit of vacation. And uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 14. That's where we'll be this morning. It is a privilege anytime I get to open the Bible with you. This morning, as we look at this story, I simply want to ask you the question, what is one of your favorite pastimes? What is one of the things that you love more than anything? As I was growing up as a child, one of the things that I loved the most was baseball. I loved to watch it. I loved to play it. I loved to collect baseball cards. I love to keep score. I was, a, I guess, a nerd, but I like to keep balls and strikes. I wanted to know everything about the game. In fact, during the summertime, I would go out and play catch any chance I got. I would, I would engage in hitting whatever I could. I'd throw stones up and hit them with a stick. I would want to play pepper with a bat and a ball against a fence. I would get involved in a game of pickle if I could and get somebody in the middle and try to tag them out. Everything that I loved doing was uh, surrounding a Saturday afternoon involved baseball. I would get kids together from the neighborhood. My brother and I, we would go out and we'd find a park or we'd find a place to play, whether it's a cul-de-sac or down the street at a park. We would get on our bikes and we would ride there with our bats over our shoulder, our gloves on our hands. Sometimes you've seen a kid trying to drive his bicycle with his gloves still on his hand. That's what I was doing. Had a, a couple of balls in a sack and off we went. One Saturday afternoon, as a seven-year-old child, I was headed down to play. We were on our bicycles. We stopped at a little cul-de-sac area where we were waiting for some more friends to join us. And on that day, we were just kind of straddling our bikes, throwing the ball back and forth, waiting for those to arrive. And I didn't notice that I was a little closer than I should have been to the person next to me. And he took his bat and he swung his bat, not knowing exactly the distance between the two of us, and he hit me square in the face, split my head wide open right above my left eye, exposing all manner of gross stuff. Playtime was over in that cul-de-sac. I was on the way to the ER for... The day I was going to get six stitches, I have one sweet scar that's covered up by my eyebrow, and it was a defining moment. In fact, it was such a defining moment that we're still talking about it even today, these many years later. Was it traumatic? Yes. Was it debilitating? No. Have you ever been knocked down, knocked out, or felt like your journey was over and there was no hope? Perhaps you got hit in the face with a baseball bat. Maybe not literally, but maybe figuratively, or, or the world just kind of threw you a curveball. Maybe this morning is your moment. Maybe some of you in this room, uh, we have a crowd in this room, and so you may have said, hey, listen, I have a wayward kid. I have a disobedient preschooler who doesn't, and one time hasn't had one of those. I have a stifling boss, a dead-end job. Perhaps I am headed into or headed out of or see a financial crisis looming on the horizon. Perhaps there's a marriage partner that's disengaged, disinterested, and overall disappointing. 
Our passage in the Bible is going to give us hope this morning when you realize that life seems to be hitting you in the face with a baseball bat. What are you to do? How are we to react? What is our response to this? An overarching thing that I'm going to give you throughout today is any life lived without a God-honoring purpose is a life wasted. The series that we're going to talk through over the next week or two is we've been looking at Acts and we've looked at uh, where Acts falls. It's in the Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. And Pastor gave us in 2019, he says, as a church, I want to take us on this journey. I want 2019 to be the year of discipleship here at Crosspoint. He's been teaching through Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. In fact, he's already kind of finished Galatians. He's moving into Ephesians. And in an effort to supplement those books, we wanted to just take a, t- a little bit of time while he was away to supplement that, to give you a glimpse of who this author was that was writing these books. In fact, he is the author, he, he is the, probably the greatest missionary, the chief missionary of the early church. He is not only one of the greatest characters in the Bible, but he is one of the greatest characters in all of history. And his name is Paul. What life-defining moments shaped him? What made him tick? What, were, what developed his character? What are those moments that caused him to go and plant churches all around the ancient world? What can you and I learn from him today that will shape our future? Last week, if you were here, you had the opportunity to walk with us in uh, Acts chapter 9, and we talked about Paul's conversion experience, where he was a young, zealous, religious fanatic. He had learned and studied from very early age, and he, he thought that the early believers were, were blaspheming his God because he believed in the law, and the law was strict guidelines, but these were following Jesus, not a law, and he persecuted them. And on his way to persecute believers in Damascus, he found, he was trying to find others and bring them back to Jerusalem and imprison them. And on his way to Damascus, he met Jesus. By way of a blinding light, he met Jesus and everything changed. It was a moment that forever shaped him. His spiritual blindness turned into glorious sight. He moved from death to life. Paul, the prosecutor and the persecutor, became the preacher. The adversary became the apostle. The terrorizer was tamed. He became a missionary, a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, an organizer, a thinker, a fighter of truth, a lover of souls, a church planter. He became a prolific writer. We have 13 New Testament books that are accounted to his pen. He was articulate, he was wise, passionate, and purposeful. The Apostle Paul was a leader with a purpose. He was on mission. And any life without God-honoring purpose is a life that is wasted. The background of our passage points to some characteristics of what does it look like for you and I to be a God-honoring person living on purpose, just like Paul. Regardless of the life circumstances, what are the things that we can learn from this passage that just we can hang our hats on today and say, these are the things that we can do, should do, in order to fulfill our purpose of walking according to Christ. 
Since we saw Paul last week, uh, he has grown. He has learned from the scriptures. He has grown in his faith. He is turning his zeal and his work ethic into pointing people to Jesus. He is going from city to city preaching the good news. In fact, that is going to be a tenor of his, the rest of his life. He is going from place to place, planting churches and encouraging the believers. He is definitely a man on the move. You see Paul never staying still anywhere. He's always going from city to city. He has his trusty sidekick Barnabas with him, and they are making their way to the city of Lystra. In fact, they're sitting in Lystra, and they're doing what they do, and that is point people to Jesus. And they met a man who was sitting on the way, and he was crippled. In fact, he had never walked a day in his life. Everybody knew him in the town. He had, he had grown up with no ability to walk. And so meeting this man, and in the power of the Spirit of God, Paul told the man, stand and walk. Well, everybody kind of knew who this was. They knew he couldn't walk, and they see this man saying, hey, stand and walk. A ridiculous statement until that man got to his feet and began to walk. The people literally lost their minds. They went nuts. They decided in this passage, they said, hey, listen, these two must be Greek gods. In fact, he must be Zeus, and the one who talks a lot, which was Paul, must be the messenger of God's Hermes. Certainly these are two Greek gods if they claim that type of power. And then Paul says, whoa, 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 hold on. In fact, we have the scripture, Acts 14, 15, says this, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Whoa, 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 it's, it's, it's not... I want to rebuke you. It's not me. It is the power of the Spirit of God that we came to tell you about. He, he rebukes them and points them to Christ. And the people's fickle beliefs, the ones that caused them in a quick moment to anoint them as Greek gods, turned on them at this moment. On Paul and Barnabas, the people, the mob stood around and said, Who are you? If you're not a Greek god, who are you speaking these blasphemies words for? And this is where our story begins this morning. Acts chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read from Acts chapter 14, 19 through 23. Would you read along with me? But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Would you pray with me now? Lord Jesus, would you take this text and in the, great, uh, the gravity and the moment of simply handling your word, allow me to get out of the way and you speak now in Jesus' name, amen. 
The first thing, if you notice here, when I looked at this passage of scripture, I thought the stoning of Paul, you think about the stoning of Stephen some chapters back. We talked a little bit about it last week. You think that was a big deal. Here, this passage has very little. It's, it's almost anticlimactic. He got stoned, he got up and went away. That's about all that you have of it. It's kind of a ho-hum, no, no big deal. In fact, if you go to 19, it says this, verse 19, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. It's the places that Paul and Barnabas had been before they reached Lystra. They had come from these places. We don't know if they were businessmen. We don't know exactly what their purpose were. Maybe they were coming to find Paul and imprison him for his blasphemous speak. We don't know. But we know Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. What did they do? He was was crumpled up in a heap with blood and flesh. They took rocks and stoned him and let the stones hit his body to the point that they thought he was dead. They drug his lifeless body to the edge of the city like a bag of garbage and left him there. And they supposed he was dead. But then see in verse 20, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. Now, if you look at that, you, you have to stop and just read it slowly. So he was going to the city edge as a dead, lifeless body of brokenness after a mob, an angry mob who had been brought together by these Jews had stoned him to the point that everybody thought he was dead. They drug him to the edge of the city. They left him there. And when the disciples gathered about him, what were they doing? They were probably weeping over losing their beloved apostle. And then what happens? They go up to his lifeless body and he kind of, he kind of shakes it off. And he rose up. And then look. And when they gathered and he rose up, he entered the city. He retraced his steps and he went back into the city. The very city that just stoned him and, and ran him out of town. That is a glimpse of who we're talking about in this year of disciple making. We see this idea of Paul who never gave up on the mission that God had sent him on. He rose up and entered the city and on the next day he went with Barnabas to Derby. Now that's not a big deal. Next day he kind of got up, kind of roused. Imagine if you were left for dead. Imagine when you pull a muscle, when you hurt your back out in the yard and you say, hey, what day is worse? Usually it's worse the second day and the third day. I happened to call a friend of mine that's a member of our church. He's a surgeon. I said, hey, what day is the kind of the worst day for a patient. He said, well, usually it's day three because I try to keep them numb until day three. But day two and day three, he is now walking to Derby. Well, that's not a big deal. I mean, just walked across the street, right? No, this was a 60-mile walk. The next day, he rose up. Can you imagine what his physical body looked like and felt like? But he had a mission to do. In fact, he mentions this stoning several different times in Galatians 6 and 2 Corinthians 4 and 11 and 2 Timothy. He mentions this defining moment. But the key is this is not just about the defining moment, but what we learn from this moment. I think we can learn seven quick characteristics of a God-honoring believer. The first is this. 
A God-honoring believer points people to Jesus. Part of our mission, Alex said it just a moment ago, part of our mission at Crosspoint is to point people to Jesus. It's evangelism. It's sharing the good news that God is perfect and we are not. And because God is perfect and we sin, because of that, there is a chasm that we can never cross. And because God is perfect and we are not, we can't get to God. So God in his love, John 3, 16, he loved us this much that he sent his only son to pave a way so that we can get in our sinfulness, we can get to God, but we don't get in sin. It's because we have a penalty that's been paid for us through Jesus who died a perfect death. And he gave us a substitute. Because of that, we see the good news. What is the good news? It is that we have a substitute. And by repentance and believing and turning from our sins, we can have a restored fellowship with God. That is the good news. That is what they're teaching. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel, the good news to that city, these men of God preached the gospel. They preached Jesus. God-honoring believers will do the same. The second point. A God-honoring member, a believer, makes disciples. A God-honoring believer makes disciples. Verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Not only did they share the good news, but they took the time out of their schedules and they discipled one another. This is the call of Jesus throughout the New Testament. In fact, if you look in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Making disciples is that intentional activity of leading people to become more and more like Jesus in all activities. It is a progressive nature of becoming like Christ, of taking up your cross and following him. Make disciples. They point people to Jesus Perhaps we could say it another way. They pointed people to Jesus and inspired them to live a cross-shaped life. Third point is this. A God-honoring believer strengthens souls. If you go to verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city. Now listen, why am I reading this over and over? It's on purpose. It's because I'm not overly creative. I just simply say, hey, if we read the Bible enough and we ask the Spirit of God to show us things and it's gonna pop off the page and you go, hey, that makes sense. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. Strengthening the souls is the idea of deepening the entire being. It is the seed of motions and vigor and vitality and foundation. It is confirming their constitution. The idea that when someone sticks their chest out, they, are, they know what they believe. It is the strengthening of souls. Have you ever been in a gym? Some of you guys work out. Some of you ladies may work out. Uh, I've never been accused of working out. My daughter one time said, hey, dad, um, I heard that uh, when you lift weights, it stunts your growth. No wonder you're so tall. <laughs> I didn't appreciate that a whole lot. So have you ever been to a gym and you see these guys, weightlifters, these guys with big chests and huge biceps and massive shoulders and tiny little legs? They forgot leg day. You know what I'm saying? They're working out. They're flexing in front of the mirror. Okay. Note to self, don't do that and don't take selfies in a gym, okay? I'm just saying. 
All right, so this is not that picture of what we're talking about here. This is a picture of the entire body being developed. Paul and Barnabas were strengthening their minds and their entire body was being grown, their mind, their body, their soul. The great commandment, Jesus says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Grow all of it. May your whole body be strengthened. And that is what Paul and Barnabas are doing, a characteristic of a God-honoring believer, is that they are consistently growing and developing and strengthening not only themselves but others. Let me ask you the question. Are you growing? Are you growing in your relationship with the Lord? Are you growing personally as you open the Bible? Are you growing others? Are you discipling and being discipled? Are there people in your life that are intentionally pouring into you? Or are you simply on an island as a castaway, perhaps? I texted with a couple that uh, visited our church for the very first time last week. I texted with them. They're making a decision of which church they were going to go to. And and they kind of landed on this one. And I, I, I texted them this. I said, you have encouraged me today with our conversations, which are always seasoned with a belief in the sovereign providence of God. They were asking the question, man, where do I fit? Where am I going to belong? And as I texted these words, I said, I love the way both of you are trusting in the Lord and waiting on him for direction and provision. I am so excited for you to influence our church and to share our, your dependence on Christ with us, dot, dot, dot me included. I can't wait for you to be here. A God-honoring believer points people to Jesus, makes disciples, and strengthens souls. The fourth thing, a God-honoring believer encourages others. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Keep reading. Encouraging them to continue in the faith. And they were saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Life-giving believers are those that are cheerleaders for the faith. Always there to encourage, to uplift, to blow wind into your sails. Regardless of the circumstances or trials that you face. Let me just take a moment. In fact, when I wrote this out, I came back and wrote this in pen just so I wouldn't forget it. I want to take a sidebar. Gospel-centered cheerleaders are always theologically accurate. You would, you would never want someone to say, hey, I just all you have to do is believe, believe God for that physician job. You know, you want to be a physician, and listen, just believe it, and God will make it so. Even though you know that you failed anatomy, sometimes we have this prosperity gospel that just believe God for it. Well, someone who is blowing wind into your sails spiritually is always going to be theologically accurate. Barnabas was known as one of the greatest encouragers in all the Bible. His name was actually Joseph. In Acts chapter 4, the, the disciples called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And I started thinking of son of encouragement. We have our own Barnabas in our church. In fact, he's not here today. His name is James Merritt. He is by nature an encourager. Unless you're a Florida or Tennessee fan. Then you will see displayed his spiritual gift of discouragement. One of his favorite phrases, in fact, I tried to give some favorite phrases. Uh, He always says, hey, that guy right there, he's a world-class guy. He's world-class. He sometimes says, now that one over there, 
He's my best friend. Man, he's my best friend. That, he sometimes say, now, now that, that William now, he's one of my best buddies in the whole world. Sometimes he'll say, that's my BFF over there. Kind of weird, but hey, listen, whatever. Doc, you just want to be around him. You just love him. Why? Because he blows wind into your sails. He, he has more best friends, more mentors, more mentees, more disciples, more pallbearers than I know of anyone. That's right. I'm not joking. When Doc has said to me, no less 20 people, he says, nah, nah, nah. he point them out. 20 people, and to his, his words, he said, that guy, he's world class. He'll carry my casket one day. Now, 20 people, that, that's a big casket. So when you look at that, he's always a super encourager saying, that's one of my friends, and that's a guy, man, he's really encouraged me, man, that guy's world class. Look at how Paul is encouraging here, though. It is not empty, vain pleasantries like you may see some people doing just on the side. He was saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Believers, hear me. We are not promised a rose garden here on earth. There will be roses, but there will be thorns, big, thick, fat thorns. We will get pricked and poked and prodded. But here is the encouraging word. God is sufficient. God is enough for whatever you are going through. He has already paid the penalty and the price for all of that. He is enough. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. A God-honoring believer uplifts and encourages even in the face of trials and temptations. Fifth point. A God-honoring believer empowers leaders. Go back to verse 23. And when they had appointed leader, uh, elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. One of the hallmarks of Paul's ministry was empowering people using their talents and treasures and resources. He wanted to always empower people. He was always naming a leader or a pastor or someone who is a, a spiritual cheerleader for the churches that he planted. He instructed the church at Ephesus, which we'll get into in the next couple of weeks as pastor gets back. He said to the folks at Ephesus that you need to equip, our job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Who are the saints? Every believer. You see, Jesus nor Paul believed in a clergy class that they did all of the work of the ministry and it was only on the clergy a strong church is made when every member, every believer is engaged in ministry. You see, we talk here about being sent this Saturday. This Saturday, July the 27th, we have CP Serves Day will commence on this campus and all throughout this region. It is an opportunity for us to serve and utilize this, this moment to unleash our love of Jesus on the people in which we live or in and around and I know that some of you, I know some of you, it's your day off. And I know that you maybe have places to go and people to see. But if we look at this text that a God-honoring believer encourages and empowers, 
I know there's close to 300 folks or so that have signed up to help us this coming Saturday. And I want to encourage you even now, would you call your friends? Would you encourage your Bible study folks, those people that you meet with week in and week out, the folks that are in your circle of influence and get on the phone and get some of those folks here. Why? Because as a community of believers, we're stronger together than we are apart. And we get, get this, we get to serve the community. It is not forced upon us. It is not a requirement. We get to. Paul appointed elders and spiritual guide and pastors for every church, providing structure and leadership, workers and development. And when we see this, we get to be a part of serving our community. God-honoring believers, they point people to Jesus, they make disciples, they strengthen souls, they encourage, they empower one another and two, two more. A God-honoring believer relies on God. Quickly, verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, shows us how with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord. This small phrase with prayer and fasting is powerful because it tells them how they did things, how they lived. A God-honoring believer relies on God. Prayer is communicating with God, communing, sitting. Fasting is the practice of submitting. Fasting is submitting your all, your being to God. So you think about these two together. Communicating, communing, and submitting. Imagine if our, our relationships were to, in our marriages, were to just copy this. If we would communicate and submit to one another and allow God to use us even in our marriage context or for our children, but even more importantly to the creator God, the, this is the way they approached their ministry was they fasted and prayed. A God-honoring believer relies on God. A God-honoring believer sends workers out. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They committed them to the Lord, to his work, his will, and his ways. We talk about these aspects in light of our four elements of our mission that we want to worship. We want to disciple. We want to serve and we want to send. They were committing the believers to the Lord. They were sending them out. And on August the 11th, coming up in a very short couple of weeks, we have Fan Day with David Pollock. It's an opportunity for you, the people in this church, to exercise your sending muscles. We are going to send you out. We are organizing a, a worship service that will clearly articulate the gospel here. And we will use an opportunity for David Pollock, who is a believer, He's a three-time All-American football player for the University of Georgia. He's a sportscaster on ESPN. All the kids know who he is because if they watch game day on Saturday mornings. But he will come, not necessarily to talk about those things, but he is going to talk about his faith journey, those life-defining moments where he radically changed his life to follow Jesus. And we as a church, we send you to your neighbors, to your coworkers and to your friends. We send our students to their classmates. We send our, student, our football players to their teams. Now, look what I said here. I want you to notice how I said that. We don't send you to neighborhoods, 
and businesses and schools and teams. Those are inanimate objects. Those are lifeless objects. We send you to people. We send you people to people. We send you, the people of God, we send me to our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our classmates, our teammates. Why? Because they have names, they have faces, and they have eternal destinies. So we as a church send, collectively, we send people out. But we individually, we are sent. I personally am sent to my sphere of influence, and so are you. We all have a purpose. Paul was purposeful in every breath that he took, every step that he walked, and every relationship that he formed. So, what happens next? As a believer, your journey never ends. As a believer, when you've been radically and forever changed by Jesus, you're your journey never stops. In fact, the next two verses, we're not gonna read anymore. The next two verses, it shows that Paul lists five cities that he's about to go to. He's retracing his steps back to the five cities that he has previously been. He's already started churches. He's already been there encouraging believers. He's going back, why? Because his journey doesn't stop. Why? Because we have the good news. And then the second thing, your journey doesn't stop, but your journey matters. Last week I said God uses human hands and I believe that with all my heart. God writes later to Timothy and he write, wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse five, he writes to his protege, to his disciple Timothy who he had poured his life into and he said these words. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure it dwells in you as well. He knew Timothy intimately. He had, he had, he had spent time with him. He had discipled him. He said, Timothy, your, your mother Eunice and your grandmother Lois, this is what's so fun about the Bible. They were all in Lystra. They were all in that city where Paul was stoned. In fact, we don't know any more than we know here, except that that's where they came from. That's where their family grew up. Timothy may have, have, have heard these stories. His mother and grandmother, perhaps they were a part of the mob. Perhaps they were sitting on the sidelines. That lifeless body was drug out to the end of the street. But from that, you see a lot that has taken place. Your God-honoring, purposeful walk with the Lord will produce a couple of things. You stay at it. It'll produce a couple of things. We see this just when he said to Timothy. He said, it'll produce a sincere faith. If you are gonna walk with the Lord over the course of time, it'll produce a sincere faith. It will, it will produce a transferable faith where you can say, hey, listen, I wanna tell you about my God and it's something that you can transfer. But the second thing, or the third thing, is it's sincere, but it's transferable, but it's also transferred. That you will look around and you will see your own Timothys. You will see your own Tituses. You will see people that you have invested in and you have not only had a transferable faith, but you have transferred it to them. We want to point people to Jesus and inspire them to live a cross-shaped life and your journey matters. I began this morning telling of getting my head busted open with a baseball bat. Of a sweet scar that's covered right here. It was a defining moment for me. What defined me was not getting hit in the head, but what I did after that. 
I got up, I went to the hospital, I got sewed up, and I went back on the field to play the game that I loved. As a believer, living a God-honoring life has ups and downs and all-arounds. But keep your eyes on Jesus and stay focused because any life lived without a God-honoring purpose is a life wasted. Some of you here this morning have just not lived on purpose. Maybe you sat down and you've been sitting for some time and you've not been in the game. Jump back in today. Today's your day. Sign up today on your way out. Go to the connection point table and take that card that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Just take that card and, and take it back to the back and say, I want in. I'll be here Saturday. What time do I need to be here? Perhaps you will get involved in CP Service Day or, or even today take and say, hey, I'm going to bring somebody or at least invite somebody to Fan Day. Those are two easy wins. For those of you sitting on the sidelines, get back in the game. Some of you in this room, you may not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and you didn't know there was a game going on, or you've been playing a different game. I want you to be encouraged this morning that Paul knew exactly where you are and where you sit. He had all the answers to every spiritual question on the pop quiz, but he never knew Jesus. This morning, I invite you this, to meet Jesus he is the greatest gift that anyone could ever ask for. He is God's only son. And as I've mentioned before, God is perfect and we are not. And because God is perfect and we are not, there's a chasm. And without Jesus coming and living a perfect life and dying a substitutionary death, you and I would not have hope for eternity. We must, by faith, believe, repent, and turn from our sinful ways and trust the Lord Jesus will save us. As we study, as we study Paul, he knew what this was like because on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus. Romans 10, 9, he wrote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you believe, confess, you will be saved. And then he said, whoever does that, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved this morning. Would you pray with me all across the room? Regardless of where you have been, where you've come from, or where you are currently, a life-changing, life-defining moment can be yours today. If you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, all you have to do is you have to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner, and by faith, I believe that you are the one who has provided a way, taken the sins that I've committed, and you took them to the cross of Christ. Ask Jesus to come into your heart and life right now. For some of you believers in the room, you've been sitting on the sideline, it's time to get back in the game. Some of you can serve in preschool. I mentioned a couple of things last week. We had a number of people that said, hey, I wanna serve in preschool or students or children's ministry. I wanna get back involved in our care point ministry. I wanna help serve in production. I wanna get involved, get in the game. You've been sitting on the sidelines way too long. Lord Jesus, even now there are men and women who are doing business with you. I pray that you would save lost people 
that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them, that you would allow them then to make disciples, that you would empower them to send others out, that you would empower leaders to step up and lead. Father, I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me and these dear people in this room and in the hearing of my voice. You do your work now in Jesus' name. Amen. Steve comes up. I'm going to go ahead and just say this. Hey, would you just take this card?